You are listening to the JCN Clinic Podcast. The JCN Clinic Podcast is a place where nutritionalists Jessica Cox and Carissa Mason get real about nutrition and living a healthy life. They share with you their passion and their clinical knowledge for a fun, no BS approach to looking after yourself. Please enjoy today's episode and don't forget to subscribe and iTunes. Hello and welcome to the JCN Clinic Podcast Show. I'm Jessica and yes, Carissa is joining me today. She's just around the corner. Today, she and I are interviewing Dr. Brad Leach. So some of you may have heard of Brad, particularly if you are in the wellness industry, particularly the gut space. Dr. Brad Leach is a PhD qualified clinical nutritionist specializing in chronic autoimmune conditions and complex gastrointestinal disorders. Very, very pertinent to us at JCN. Brad provides complete personalized care to his patients using functional nutrition, integrative medicine, and holistic wellness. After entering the profession in 2008, Brad has taught and developed subjects at leading universities and conducted research on intestinal permeability, autoimmune disease management, and food-based probiotics. Brad is also the lead clinical educator at CoBiome by Microba, where his expertise in gastrointestinal healthcare enables him to translate the latest science on the gut microbiome into practical clinical applications. In addition to his research and working with patients, Brad offers practitioner support through his mentoring program, Brad's Brainiacs. Wow, what an introduction. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode with Dr. Brad Leach. Hi, Brad. Welcome to the JCN Clinic podcast show. It is amazing to have you here with me and Carissa today. It is uh, fantastic to finally getting the chance to sit down and and have a bit of a a conversation about all things microbiome and health and and everything in between. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this chat and um, I think a lot of our listeners are going to learn a lot and hopefully have their minds blown a little bit along the way (laughs) in everything (laughs) gut health. Um, Before we dive in though, can you let our listeners know just a little bit about you? I would have explained a bit of that in our intro, but it's always nice to hear that directly from you. Just a bit of your backstory, what led you to where you are and... um, love to hear a little bit about microba too because some people might be like what the hell's microba yeah, most definitely so um my uh, my journey in, in this health profession it started in 2008 where basically i i wasn't getting challenged enough with school and yes i was in school in 2008 um that's uh, showing my age and um <laughs> i came from a family of very health conscious individuals so my mum would be always into you know, the juice fasting and, and um, organic veggies. And I was eating gluten-free before gluten-free was even an option at, at any restaurant. Not that I was celiac, mm-hmm. but more from the fact that my mum thought it was the healthier option. So I grew up on that really hard and disgusting gluten-free pasta, which uh, you can still get today, believe it or not. So I digress. Um, it was in 2008 where I was like, <laughs> I need, I need to get into this profession. I need to learn more. I want to, 
I want to uh, increase my knowledge in this area. So I basically, at the age of 15, I started a um, advanced diploma in Ayurvedic medicine. And by the age of 16, I was seeing my first patients. Um, and I do recall seeing my very first patient at the age of 16. It was a menopausal woman. And I was sitting down with her, giving her some Ayurvedic lifestyle advice. Um, and just the look on her face going, you're giving me advice about my menopause and you haven't even finished going through puberty yourself. Um, so a bit of a shock for, for both of us. Um, and so I very much struggled in those earlier years. Seeing patients under the age of 18 was quite difficult from that perspective of, of you know, trying to build that trust and that knowledge basis um, mm. for, for people to actually listen to what I actually have to say. Um, and then so I basically said, well, I need, I need more education from this. And so I spent the, the next 12 years of my life um, doing a Bachelor of Nutrition Honours at Endeavour and then um, finishing up a, a PhD at UTS. Um, and so I've, I've been involved in a variety of different research projects all around um, autoimmune disease, gut health. Um, my PhD uh, involves the development of what I refer to as the IP guideline. So the IP guideline is a clinical practice guideline for the treatment of increased intestinal permeability by naturopaths, integrative doctors and nutritionists in clinical practice. So it's basically a guide of all the evidence out there on how do you treat this reaction within the small intestines through a evidence-based perspective? Um, after completing PhD, I've, I've done a number of different roles, um, working with uh, different universities such as Endeavour and Southern Cross University and UTS, um, all around developing um, uh, content and lecturing um, in that area. And I'm now the, um, the lead clinical educator at Cobion by Microba which is basically a, um, a stool testing company here in Brisbane where we support with um, healthcare practitioners in, in measuring their patients' microbiome. Wow. That, um, that's pretty impressive, <laughs> I've got to say, Brad. <laughs> um, I, yeah, obviously for Carissa and I as well, like just hearing what you've achieved through that PhD and our love of the gut health space and um even just from a time frame point of view like I think about I know you were sort of saying about your age there um I would I probably could tack a few extra years on there and I kind of think about that from even the point of view of when I went through Endeavour and like and came out the other end and I would say the lack of available research and study mm-hmm. um in the area of intestinal permeability and even the way it was even looked at by mainstream. And it's just fascinating and so exciting to me to hear, um, yeah, you be able to like not only come out of endeavor and be able to like dive into something like that um, through a PhD, but then, yeah, it's just, I think it's amazing to be able to then, develop what you've developed and bring that out to like the naturopathic nutritional world let alone like the whole um sort of westernized health space um which is becoming more and more accepting of this Mm. concept of intestinal permeability and the guard and its connection to other systemic inflammation so 
yeah, I just think it's really uh, exciting. Mm, and and that is exactly right. My my passion and really what drives me in the morning is going developing educational con- content for um, uh, healthcare pr- practitioners. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask too, just to digress, I was thinking when you were talking about growing up and having that really strict upbringing around health, um, one of my really close friends grew up like that, um, a male, and (laughs) when he hit his early teenage years, he did the opposite like he so he was but his concept of ice cream was having cottage cheese and an ice cream cone and he thought that was ice cream and he got to this point where he was like what the hell man like this what am what am, what's going on here and he completely rebelled he went the other way he was like give me all the maccas give me all the xyz i just um i think it's interesting that you stayed very much in that lane like were you ever as a young person kind of pulled to this other world as far as like what else was out there? That's an interesting question. And no, because because I did study, because it wasn't just, you know, my family saying, you know, do this and do that, because I actually learnt it Mm. at a very early age. I'm very proud to say that I have never had a a Coke, as in the the drink. I've never had um, Coca-Cola. I've never had McDonald's. I've, I've, I've never... Gone down that way because I know better. So I don't have that craving of, you know, if I have a a few, I I drink. So of course I'll, you know, I'm not, I'm not so extreme that I don't drink, but Mm. I don't, I know that some individuals, even if they're very health conscious, if they have a couple of drinks, they'll go, oh, where's, where's my Maccas? And and they'll want to, to to get Maccas at one (laughs) o'clock in the morning. Um, where I even last night, bit of a, an off story but we I go shopping um with my wife and we have this rule at home no eating after eight o'clock now that's to support with your digestion and 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 and, and healing the gut and, and everything and, and that optimal health um and she takes that rule with a bit of a grain of salt but it was quite funny we, we rock up to the supermarket and it was about five to eight and she bolted it into the supermarket to grab a bar of sugar-free, dairy-free chocolate, um, and she ate it just before eight o'clock. She goes, "Okay, great, I can do this." Um, so I, I very much practice what I preach in relation to to optimal gut health and optimal well-being. Yeah, oh, that's fascinating. Okay, so thanks for that really interesting intro. Um, the rest of what we want to talk about today was actually driven by one of our listeners who sent in. A very meaty question. And I, I brought it up with Carissa and she's like, we need to hold off on that and talk to Brad because there's just so much in it. And I, as soon as she said that, I was like, yep, true, true. This is going to be a goodie. So um, it's, it's multifactorial. And of course, it's very much about the gut, but it's also about this sort of concept of testing and the complexities of testing. So one of the um, sort of initial questions from this listener was about how the gut is influenced by external and then internal parameters and then its transience mm-hmm. nature in general. So what we mean by that is for our listeners is that how the gut isn't just a static space, how it is fluid and how it changes um, depending on these um, yeah, external or internal factors that are going on. So 
could we firstly have you talk a little bit about that, about how that gut is an ever-changing environment? Hmm. And it's one of these concepts that we really need to consider to actually get an accurate evaluation of, of our microbiome. So I'll start with the most classic and the most obvious, and that will be antibiotics. So we're, we're well, we have a great understanding that when we take antibiotics, their action is to, to reduce or kill or prevent the, the growth of bacteria also within our gut. So we need to take that into consideration. And because they can have quite a, a large influence on the microbiome, it's generally recommended to wait around a month before measuring the microbiome. So it will take around a month, depending on, on how long, depending on the type of antibiotics, it will take a month for the microbiome to, let's say, recover back to its, its norm, normal state. Um, so that's always that concept of, of let's wait a month if the antibiotic was like an out of the blue. If for some reason, let's take a inflammatory bowel disease patient, and I've got a number of these where they're on antibiotics almost on a weekly or monthly basis. They're on antibiotics all the time. That would be considered their normal, okay? So they don't necessarily need to wait that one-month period because their normal is having antibiotics on a, regular, uh, on a regular basis. So we can take that into consideration when viewing the microbiome. Now, from, let's say, a naturopathy perspective is antimicrobial herbs. So I'll ask both of you, are you... Do you use antimicrobial herbs in, in clinical practice? Do you have naturopaths with you that use antimicrobials? Yeah, absolutely we do. We we use them yeah. quite heavily because of the types of cases that we deal with. I was chatting to Steph about this in reception the other day, actually, because I feel like the, like not the theory, but even just the understanding of antimicrobials has really changed over like the years now that we're under, actually like understanding more about like their actions in the gut microbiome. And I would have to say, like, even when Jess said like quite heavily there, I think we've always had the approach that when we've used them, it's not for like crazy long periods of time. And then I think comparatively to what I've heard does go on in the space, like our holistic health space, I would say we're not as heavy handed as other people. Like I know for myself with my clients, if I'm using them, I like to kind of use them for a shorter period of time, obviously not as short as what we would use a pharmacological antibiotic. But even now, more the stuff that I'm learning and reading, I'm starting to not, I think even just pull back a little bit from that because we're yeah, it's just it's a it's an it's an interesting space at the moment. So I'm like, oh, what more are we going to learn about this? So, well, what I can tell you in relation to antimicrobial use and the microbiome. So, for a very long time, we've been relying on very outdated ways on measuring the microbiome. So we don't get a full full understanding on how antimicrobials can actually impact the whole microbiome. But just in the last few years. Um, research articles have actually emerged to, to show the impact of taking antimicrobials on the whole microbiome. Now, what these research articles actually show is taking berberine. So berberine is found in philodendron and golden seal. It's, it, it's a compound found in antimicrobial herbs. Taking berberine at around that 500 milligrams twice a day can actually increase a particular microbial metabolite called hexa-LPS, which is very pro-inflammatory and reduce 
um, butyrate producing species, which is anti-inflammatory. Um, the research also shows that it can actually change health and disease associated species. So taking antimicrobials for a period of three months can increase disease associated species while reducing health associated species. Um, so where I'm going with this is we need to take this into consideration when measuring the microbiome. So ideally, if somebody is on antimicrobials, we'll want them to wait two weeks before measuring their microbiome to allow their microbiome mm -hmm. to somewhat recover. So then the results are influenced by taking the antimicrobials. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we tend to, depending on when we're testing the client, like whether it's an initial test and they're just starting with us versus whether it's um, a retest, we'll potentially push and pull that um, depending on the type of testing that we're doing and where the client is at because 100%, yeah, 100% it shows exactly there like that influence of whether it's antibiotics or yeah in this case any microbials that we need to consider on the terrain um sometimes i might have a client mm -hmm. um test at like a little like pull, pull a shorter window particularly if i'm wanting to ascertain where their gut is at with the support of the treatment that they're doing instead of allowing like um a, a time frame for it to um change like I'm trying to see like where is it at right now with this actual current support mechanism but yeah absolutely with what you're saying that makes perfect sense as far as those outside well they're yeah they're outside but um parameters but really internal parameters start outside come internal as far as the influence um on the microbiome yes. from that perspective mm-hmm so there are a few others, um, things such as colonics. Now, colonics can actually, in some respect, be beneficial if there's high amount of detrimental metabolites within the microbiome. So it can actually have a washing out effect. Mm -hmm. um, but I generally recommend my patients to wait two weeks um, after a colonic to actually measure the microbiome to allow it to, to come back to its, its normal state. So that also goes with... Um, um, colonics, I'm sorry, um, colon, oh my God, I've just gone mind blank, um, prepping for a colonoscopy. Mm. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, so generally wait that two-week period after a, a colonoscopy to allow the microbiome to come back to a stable um, level. Another interesting one a lot of patients will ask is in relation to probiotics. They will go, oh, do I need to stop probiotics before measuring the microbiome? And the answer is, well, it depends on how you're measuring the microbiome. If you're measuring your microbiome through, let's say, culture, then, well, yes, because that's really mm. going to influence the results. But if you're measuring the microbiome through metagenomics, so really looking at all of the species in the gut, you can take probiotics, no problems at all. They may very well show up on the report, but they'll be so small that it's actually not going to overly change the report and it won't change how a clinician may utilize the results. Um, a few maybe, let's say, concluding remarks about the microbiome is any huge change, such as uh, a massive change in the diet. So let's say, you know, you've been following a vegan diet for six months and then you've, you switch over to a keto or paleo diet. And then, you know, one week after that, you measure your microbiome. 
yeah, that's that's going to throw things completely off. So in an ideal world, you want to measure the microbiome when it's normal, mm. when it's a, a normal week to week for you. But something that you said earlier about sometimes you want to understand what's happening in the patient's microbiome at a particular mm. time point. So if a patient is in a, a flare, whether it's um, an inflammatory bowel disease flare or diverticulitis flare or another flare within the gut, you will want to, or I would want to measure the gut at that time to have mm. an understanding on what's happening during that period of time for them and then thereby to prevent future flares or when future flares develop, you'll know kind of what's happening and then thereby what interventions may, may come into play. Um, so that, that really is the microbiome. But when we actually expand and look at, let's say, gastrointestinal health, we've also got GI markers or functional markers that can be impacted or influenced by both internal and, and external factors. So I'll start with calprotectin. Now, you'd, you'd be very well um, have the understanding of calprotectin. It's a marker of, of intestinal inflammation. It's very accurate. Um, and the medical system very much utilizes this marker for the diagnosis of particular organic-based gastrointestinal conditions. But particular things like NSAIDs, so non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs, should actually be stopped two days before measuring the gut because NSAIDs are known to actually um, impact uh, calprotectin. In saying that, if somebody takes NSAIDs as part of their everyday normal medication, then that is not to be changed. You know, it's only if it's it's a, a one-off um, type of um, prescription. The other thing here is in relation to the transportation and um, almost the evaluation of calprotectin. So we know that if calprotectin is exposed to um, greater amounts of heat or um, is in transit for more than 72 hours, that can actually impact results. So causing false positives and false negatives. Um, and that's very much the same for things like secretory RGA. Um, what you know you see in, in multiple research studies is if secretory RGA is exposed to more than 30 degrees for, for and been out for a longer, long, longer, longer than 72 hours, secretory RGA will become low. So that's giving us a false result. So it's really important that when doing a microbiome and gut-related test, to get it back to the lab as soon as possible so then we can get an accurate understanding. Um, you've also got other things internally that can impact GI markers, such as loose stools. So if someone has um, bouts of, of diarrhea or if they've got IBS type D where they just constantly have loose stools, particular functional markers such as pancreatic elastase can result in a false positive, so being low when in fact it's actually not low. Um, and then even stool pH can be impacted by that as well. Um, my favorite would probably be zonulin. So there's a number of factors that can impact zonulin. So high amounts of exercise. So if someone's gone for a really long run the day before doing a stool test, that can impact zonulin, thereby increasing it. Um, even saunering and, and ex exposure to um, increased heat. What we know is, is when the intestines is, uh, are exposed to, to higher degrees of temperature that can denature the proteins, resulting in uh, this leaky gut or intestinal permeability. Um, so avoiding high amounts of exercise and saunering um, before um, 
measuring the gut is also recommended. So they're, they're just a few mm-hmm. examples of, of how external and internal factors can, can influence markers you know, of, of, of a gut health. Yeah, that's that's great. I think which I think something we'll keep coming back to that you've highlighted there, as you've mentioned, a lot of those components affecting the microbiome is the importance of aligning these tests with really good case taking and understanding your client. Like so many of those mm. things you just mentioned come down to firstly your practitioner having the knowledge and the understanding um, about those different parameters, but being able to have that in-depth conversation with a client and know, okay, what do they need to know prior to the testing and test collection, but also the interpretation of the testing. So as you said there too, like, okay, what, if, if you know that client and you know the behavior of their, their bowel and their digestion, you're going to be layering that on the information you get back from the test. So obviously the the testing is so um, fundamental for us in clinic, (laughs) but the most important factor always is the person sitting in the chair or the virtual chair, as I say these days. Um, So yeah, I just, that's probably something we'll continue to come back to is like, you know, the, the physicality of like all of this in relation to the person as an individual. And I 100% agree. It's even when when a microbiome report will show a pathogen mm. or a pathobionce, you've really got to take into the account the patient. You're not going to come in with antibiotics or antimicrobials to treat a a pathogen. And I'm doing quotation marks for everyone who's listening and not watching. Um, in respects to it may not actually be a pathogen, and then thereby should we actually be treating mm. it if there's no clinical symptoms? Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the other side, if the patient does have abdominal pain and um, diarrhea or bloody diarrhea mm-hmm. and there's a, a qPCR pathogen detected, then 100 percent we're going to be treating that because there's that that direct link between clinical symptoms and results, and we need to do something about that. So 100 percent, Jessica, exactly what you said, we need to take all results, not just microbiome, but all mm-hmm. results in bloods and Dutch hormones in context of the individual yeah absolutely i was just gonna say i do with a lot of my clients too if this helps any other practitioners listening to the podcast is quite often um one firstly one of the questions which i think has already been answered but quite commonly jess and i get this question a lot brad is well i change my diet day to day and do this so how you know valuable really is gut testing and i think you've already answered that but just for everyone listening like it's about your normal like you can change your diet day to day and you know change maybe potentially change your exercise pattern but if you're testing when you're at your most normal state of how you live your day-to-day life then the testing is absolutely going to be relevant and give us an insight into your microbiome but the other thing I say to my clients especially with like dutch testing stool testing anything like that we'll always make a plan for when they're going to do the testing but then I always have the conversation or just say, if anything happens outside of your normal, like you don't sleep well that night or you pick up a bout of gas or anything like that, can you please let me know before you do the test and we'll make a call about how relevant it is to do the test right now or whether we hold off another month or so. So that's always, you know, it's just a good conversation to have because people are spending big money on testing. It's not, it's not a cheap exercise. It's a bloody valuable exercise, but it's not a cheap one a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we want to get the most out of it as we can. So 
yeah, I think that's a good one too. Just interrupting the show for a moment, guys, to tell you about our revamped Real Food Reset Plan. This is one of our most popular plans that you can purchase on our online shop on the website. It's been designed by clinical nutritionists and it provides a two-week rotational seven-day plan that we encourage you to follow for a minimum of four weeks. All of the recipes are delicious. They are macronutrient balanced. And essentially, this is about helping you navigate the overwhelming task of getting started with eating whole foods. There's loads of veggies, fiber, whole grains, proteins, omega-3s, all of those big areas that we talk to you about a lot on the podcast and within JCN. So it's really about getting those beautiful nourishing foods into you, supporting your natural detoxification, getting your energy up, supporting digestion, and even that brain and mental clarity. So if you'd like to try the Real Food Reset, we recommend jumping onto the website. It's only $39.95, which we think is pretty crazy, but we love the idea of this as a Kickstarter or a taste of what we do at JCN. Or maybe you're a client who's just like, yeah, I'd love some more recipes, or I'd like to play around with a little bit more structure for a while with a plan. This is for you. So again, head to jessicacox.com.au to our online shop and get your copy of the Real Food Reset Plan today. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I wanted to just pivot off something that you mentioned also about diet um, and then come back to this sort of concept of how these factors are influencing what we're doing with testing. Um, you, you touched briefly on changes with with diet and Definitely, if we've kind of got what our normal diet is, again, in quotation marks, normal versus if we've pivoted and we're um, trying, say, a vegan diet or if we've like gone from eating gluten to not eating gluten and it's it's an anomaly as such. So we would, I feel like from that perspective, it's like that's an, an obvious change as far as fuel for the microbiome. But one of the questions here from this listener was more subtle than that it's about how we eat on a daily basis even in our concept of normal um, and how that can subtly change day to day and whether that is something that we need to be considering with testing and data so say for today I had porridge for breakfast and I had some roast veggies and tuna for lunch and then some chicken and veggies for dinner and then tomorrow I have a pancake and then I have a soup like you know I you know you, I, I know you guys know where I'm getting at but this is the stuff that the that the clients and listeners are thinking about because they are hearing um, us talk about like how food and diet influences a microbiome and then it's like hang on a second like if I eat a certain way at this time of the week versus another way later in the week, is this going to have a major impact on my microbiome when it comes to testing? Yeah. So this is this is an excellent question. Mm-hmm. And one, honestly, when, when people are not hesitant, but when people try and challenge um, the need for, for a microbiome test, whether it's, you know, you're debating online or, or you know, you're, you're discussing with, with a patient, 
It's actually a bit of a misconception. And the misconception has actually arisen through um, poor research, poor sequencing methods of the microbiome. So what we actually know, when we look at high quality research, um, and uh, before this, this morning and, and yesterday, I, I looked through all the literature to really ensure that what I'm going to say in relation to um, the microbiome's influence from day to day was not just accurate from a clinic's perspective, but also accurate from the latest research. And what's quite interesting is what we know from, from the research is that the relative abundance of species will actually change day to day. That, that there's no... There's no um, debating that. We know that the relative abundance of species will change day to day. But the community of particular microbes, so who is there and their function is actually not going to change day to day. Mm. So when I say relative abundance, I'm talking about the percentage of, of how much of that particular species uh, 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 accounts for that um, person's microbiome. That will fluctuate on a day to day basis. Um, but that doesn't have any clinically relevant um, impact on us. What we're more concerned about in clinical practice is, A, who's there, okay? Mm. Um, so if it fluctuates by 1% or 2%, it, it's still going to be there. So if someone's dominant um, species, so their relative abundant species with the highest amount of um, abundance that's not going to go from you know 8% relative abundance all the way down to 0.1% relative abundance in a period of one day or two days or even six months. That's not going to have that major influence. But species that have, let's say, a 0.01% relative abundance that make up a very, very, very small component of the microbiome, yeah, they will fluctuate. The research has shown that they will fluctuate. But we as clinicians, we're not looking at those species because they're, they're having such a minor, such a small clinical impact that it's, it's actually not our focus. Our focus are on these species that take up um, a higher amount of the um, overall relative abundance and then also their function. So what the research actually shows is species with a lower relative abundance, they're going to change day to day. But those with a much higher relative abundance, they're not. They're going to be quite stable. Um, and so a number of studies have shown um, collecting samples, you know, a couple of samples within a, a 72 hour period and then comparing it and contrasting it and then also comparing it to um, uh, six months down the track. And they stay relatively the same in individuals who maintain a very similar lifestyle. So I'll give you the example of, of let's say, myself. So I probably about mm, six months ago. I did a period of, I measured my microbiome uh, three times in a 12-month period. Now, I have no gastrointestinal conditions. I've got no diagnosed medical conditions. I've never taken antibiotics. I, I don't take NSAIDs. Um, my diet's, although very diverse, and I'm eating a variety of different things, different meals, day in, day out, but um, there's that consistent whole food um, component. My microbiome, my top species, they all stayed the same. They may fluctuate in the, their abundance, but they, they stayed the same. And the function of my microbiome, so that is what my overall microbiome is doing, stayed the same. Um, but you compare that to, 
let's say every patient that I see in practice, they have a bad diet, they're, they're drinking too much or they're taking the wrong medications or they've got a disease associated with a, an imbalance of the bacteria in the gut. When you measure their microbiome and then implement a treatment protocol, so that's with targeted prebiotics, that's with a, a whole food diet, that's with you know moderate exercise, you know, things that we recommend on a daily basis where we change their lifestyle, we change their diet significantly, yes, their microbiome is going to change to reflect mm-hmm. what that is. The big, big caveat here is, and this is where a lot of the misconception has actually come from, is how we're measuring the microbiome. So there's a lot of ways that we can measure the microbiome. Some are accurate and some are not. So let's take culture for an example. So culture is where basically you send off a little piece of your poop to a lab um, and they will try and grow bacteria and they'll they'll culture your stool. What we know from culture-based studies is we can only view about 5% of the microbiome. Now, Things such as cross-contamination and day-to-day dietary changes, that can actually have quite a, uh, a significant impact on the results of a culture-based test, okay? Whereas when we look at um, things like qPCR, so qPCR, you'd be familiar with that. That is how we diagnose pathogens, um, and qPCR was used, of course, during the pandemic. qPCR utilizes this concept of a probe. What that basically means is This particular test is looking for that particular species of bacteria. It's looking for that that toxigenic strain or that toxigenic species of bacteria. Now, if you have a pathogen, if you have some form of of pathogenic E. coli detected on a qPCR, that's not going to change because you're actually going to have to implement some form of intervention to, to address this pathogenic um, strain or species of, of E. coli. Um, so we know that qPCR, when looking at particular pathogens, is very accurate. The problem with just relying on qPCR to look at the microbiome is it will only look at 20 or 30 different species. Like it, it won't actually look for the whole microbiome. So then that leads me to um, my preferred method, and that's metagenomics. So metagenomics, basically, it looks at the DNA of bacteria. And because it looks at the DNA of bacteria, it's not, it doesn't have a probe, so it's just looking for a particular species. It looks at all the species within the gut, meaning we can understand who's there and what they do. And because we can look at the DNA of the bacteria, what this means is we can understand going, oh, this sequence, oh, this is a butyrate-producing bacteria. Okay, good. Or looking at the sequence, oh, no, hold on, this is a hexa-LPS-producing species, which is bad, which is linked with with endometriosis and and, and inflammation and inflammatory bowel disease. Um, And so what has come out in the research recently is functional stability. So the functional markers of the microbiome, so this is microbial metabolites, this is the function of the microbiome, they are very stable. It is a very accurate and stable way to evaluate the microbiome that isn't actually influenced on the day-to-day mm. variations um, within within diet. That's such a good answer. Um, thank you for that. I think what this listener um, actually brought up, there was a past episode that we did with Dr. Carrie Jones and, yeah, she, she just mentioned something. We It was a bit of a flippant comment that we're all talking about the concept of how 
your microbiome can be um, changed from the relevance of diet or um, the environment can change even like with the 24-hour um, sort of concept of like what you ate today versus tomorrow. But as you just really perfectly explained there, this sort of concept of just relative abundance and like the nuances that we can see consistently changing. But it's it's more about that, um, yeah, the sort of overall patterns of the microbiome or even I think again when you think of these in the point of view of a client and someone that's actually having issues with their health and their gut like it that concept of like potential whether it's an overt pathogen or an overgrowth of more LPS producing bacteria or whatever it is that is part of that problem for them, that that isn't going to just go away. That isn't going to change with these subtleties in a 24-hour cycle. So my again, my like pancake today versus my porridge tomorrow isn't going to suddenly make my overgrowth of my... <laughs> um, LPS producing bacteria suddenly go, oh, sweet. I love it when she eats pancakes. I feel so much better. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's uh, exactly correct. Um, so thank you for answering that. That's amazing. Um, so one of the other concepts, and this is something I always, anytime hormones come up, I always think of Carissa because she's just like, our hormone queen, shall we say, or hormone obsessed <laughs> clinician within JCN um, is about hormones, particularly for women. Um, obviously, if there's anything from a male perspective, like absolutely, let's discuss it. But again, as women, we are dealing with our cycle, the fluctuations of that cycle with our sex hormones in particular is this something we should be considering also when it comes to microbiome testing? Um, and again, if it mm. is, what, what should we be considering? And it's a really interesting concept. And unfortunately, the vast majority of research is done on men. Yeah. And it's quite sexist and it's quite biased in the respects to back in the 70s and 80s, researchers basically... I don't want to say gave up on women. That's a bit too harsh. But they they basically concluded doing research on men is easier. Mm. So a lot of even the research on pharmaceutical drugs is done on men and men only because hormones um, will fluctuate the the the, the results. Um, what I will start off with is saying there is not enough research on the impact of the menstrual cycle in relation to, to, to females in the microbiome. It's still in such early um, times that it, it, it's, it's too early to actually say exactly what happens when. Mm. But what I can say is there's a few things that we can take into consideration. First of all, we don't actually want to do a sample when um, a woman is menstruating. Mm -hmm. We actually want to wait three days post-menstruation. Mm -hmm. That is because menstrual blood can cause cross-contamination um, and it can actually impact um, uh, markers for, let's say, occult blood, um, looking at GI markers. It can cause an elevation in um, human DNA. So human DNA, when looking at a microbiome report, is kind of used as a 
indicator is, is there any cross-contamination? Did, um, did the patient, you know, touch wrong parts of, of the um, sampling um, uh, kit and then thereby impacting the stool results? So a bit of cross-contamination. The other one here is cervical mucus. So yes, it can cause uh, false results in relation to a DNA, cross-contamination, occult blood, but then also vaginal species. So what we know is the, the vagina has a lot of lactobacillus species, okay, a lot of them. Now, what's quite interesting, now this might come as a surprise to some of the listeners, is a healthy microbiome does not need lactobacillus species. And I know that that's a very controversial topic. And I know that when I was in college and when I was actually teaching at college, I, I, I said, you know, we need lactobacillus in our gut. But when you actually understand a lot of the misconceptions in the research and how different species of bacteria have been categorized in the wrong genus, thereby we thought that they were like lactobacillus, but in fact, they weren't lactobacillus. We come to the realization that you don't actually need lactobacillus bacteria in your gut for it to be healthy. I'll give you an example. My gut, perfectly healthy. You know, as I mentioned before, you know, I grew up on a farm, vaginal birth, I breastfed, no problems at all. But I've got no lactobacillus. But my overall function of my gut is, is perfect. So where I'm going with this is in relation to cross-contamination. Now, I've seen this probably three or four times now where you're looking at a microbiome report and the microbial metabolites are completely out of, out of range. And it's just, it's not adding up. It's not making sense. But then when you actually look at the report, you see all of these lactobacillus species and you go, hold on. These lactobacillus species, they don't normally colonize the mm. gut. They colonize the vagina and thereby causing false results. So what I'll allude to there is Avoid measuring the microbiome while menstruating, while three days after menstruating, so wait you know, at least three days. And if there's any excessive um, uh, vaginal fluids, to not measure the microbiome at that point because there could be that cross-contamination as well. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Do you, do you think, and I know, as you just said, there's not a lot of research in this area with women specifically, um, which hopefully... Hopefully in the years to come, there will be. Um, I'm just curious if you have any, like, I know you can't kind of quantify this with with research, but any suspicions? Because I, I guess I think, and I imagine Krista might be the same, like there, there undoubtedly would be influences in the behaviour of the microbiome through the cycle and like how fascinating would it be to see women with something like endometriosis testing in say the luteal phase versus in the follicular phase like I just and my mind my mind just boggles with like the extra information that we could gain here but I'm just curious if you've got any particular suspicions about my what may be going on there um Mm. if not that's fine but yeah just just curious my educated assumption this is got no research to back this up but this is what i would through deductive reasoning conclude Mm. is looking at that research that i mentioned earlier in relation to time and microbiome whereby we know that over a, a a period of four years your microbiome 
the relative abundance of about 60% of your species will change. So that is, you know, the, the quantities of, of each species will, will, will change, whether it's very minor or, 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 or a lot, that's, that's unknown. So I would allude to the fact that yes, relative abundance of species would change at different times of the month, depending on the hormones, but the overall species and the overall function of the microbiome would stay relatively stable um, and would not have a clinically useful information. We've got to remember at the end of the day, when we do any form of microbiome test or, or functional test, we want the results to direct and influence how we're going to treat our patients. Okay, so at the end of the day, what, what the results will be providing us will be directing us as to what we need to do. So those, and I would suspect minor changes, wouldn't actually significantly impact how we would treat our patient, thereby it'd be more important to measure the microbiome than to be not measuring the microbiome because we're cautious about fluctuations in, in hormones. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Really, really interesting topic. It is going to be so um, eye-opening to see from a hopefully research point of view what happens in this space. I think there's obviously a lot more being put on female health now as far as focus and money going into it as far as research goes. So um, I'm definitely looking to see what we what we might find. And again, it's just just again with clients and just seeing the natural cycles of symptoms and how that's influenced by the menstrual cycle. And of course, it's more than just what's going on in the microbiome. Like there's multiple factors, but it's certainly a fascinating space on its own right. So one of the um, other things you mentioned as we've been chatting through, and this wasn't something from our list of questions as such, but I just wanted to circle back to was about berberine. And I've heard you talk about berberine and, and this research and read a little bit about it myself. Um, but definitely remember listening to you talk quite passionately about it on another podcast. Um, so do you mind, I know we're going again, like I said, right at the start before we record a little rogue, but do you mind just um, speaking a little bit more about that new research? Because I think we have, as Carissa mentioned, it's not only the clients and the average person looking for information on here, but there's a lot of um, clinicians that listen as well. So I know it's a big topic, but I'd just be interested to hear a little bit from you about some of that research around berberine because I feel like berberine has it still has a lot to offer and again in the right context it can be amazing but I'm just curious to hear just some of that um, info mm. from you mm. what I'll what I'll share with you is what I refer to as my four rules when um, using or considering the use of antimicrobials mm -hmm. and these rules are test reflect protect regenerate so what I'm what I mean by this is testing the microbiome so before we use antimicrobials or before we consider using antimicrobials, we want to test the microbiome and get an understanding on who's there and what they're doing and whether or not there's any potential pathogens. Because believe it or not, we have been uh, conditioned to believe that particular species or even genus um, of, of bacteria are actually pathogens. Mm. 
examples of this is when a, a, a microbiome test will say, oh, you've got Klebsiella species. Okay, They won't list the species, but they'll just say Klebsiella species. Or they'll say, you've got Streptococcus species. Now, these can be considered as pathobionts. And when I say pathobionts, I, I refer to this as they can be associated with um, negative or positive health outcomes, these, these particular species. I'll give you the example. There's particular Streptococcus species which are found in your oral cavity. Okay. Now, you question, how is oral species found in your stool? Well, logic would say, and this is shown with research in, in relation to the use of PPIs or proton pump inhibitors, is when there's a lack of stomach acid, these oral species can escape this, this, this um, very low pH and end up in our stool. So the question I allude to is, should we be trying to kill oral streptococcus species with antimicrobials? Well, no, because we actually want to take a step back and, and put our, our naturopathic um, hat on of, of find the root cause and go, the root cause isn't a pathogen or a pathobiont. It is indicating that stomach acid needs to be addressed. So that first rule is testing to really understand what are you trying to achieve in relation to, to using antimicrobials. The next rule is to reflect. And that is almost what I just alluded to there is reflecting on the patient, reflecting on the microbiome. When I say reflect on the patient is, I give a great example, a patient I had yesterday, she um, was having, um, she had diverticulitis, she um, had bouts of cramping and almost like an IBS type picture. And she found positive results using peppermint oil, okay, where she could be symptom free all day when using peppermint oil. Now, I'm not saying don't use antimicrobials, but by no means, I'm, I'm a herbalist at heart. My first qualification was in, in herbal medicine. I love my herbs, but it's a time and a place, and we need to consider the individual at play. So the patient here is complaining, oh, I feel benefit when taking um, peppermint oil. Then you know what? I'm going to give, to, to give the patient peppermint oil because she gets her quality of life. If she's got better quality of life, she can cook better, and then her overall health will improve. Okay, so that's test, reflect, and then protect. So if they are to use um, antimicrobials, so if antimicrobials are needed to, to, to maybe treat SIBO or, or, or to treat a pathogen whereby antibiotics would also be required, we want to protect the microbiome. When I say protect the microbiome, I'm talking about what we can do. So I like to use targeted um, prebiotics, especially HMOs, so human milk oligosaccharides. So these human milk oligosaccharides, they are a type of prebiotic fiber which can actually reduce the adhesion of um, pathogenic bacteria to the, the, the wall of the intestines, um, potentially increase beneficial bacteria, and then feed up um, the good bacteria. So it's, it's almost this crowding out perspective. We've also got this concept of um, uh, reducing any detrimental bacteria which might be there. So I'll, I'll give you the example of, of E. coli and hexa-LPS. So hexa-LPS is known to produce, sorry, E. coli is known to produce hexa-LPS. Now, rather than coming in trying to, to kill it, which may have consequence on other species, 
what the research is actually showing is if we utilize GOS, so galacto-oligosaccharides, a type of prebiotic fiber, when we supplement that for at five grams for three months, it reduces these E. coli, reduces the species known to produce hexa-LPS, thereby changing the microbiome without the need of using antimicrobials. So there's, there's that to consider as well. And then there's the concept of regenerate. So after the use of antimicrobials, we really want to do a restorative phase for the microbiome. And that is a high fiber diet. That is using uh, things like resistant starch type two found in green banana flour. That is incorporating your beta-glucans found in oats on a, on a daily basis. That is getting in diversity into the diet. That is involving fermented foods within the diet. Everything that we do naturopathically and holistically to support with the microbiome, we need to ensure that we implement that during and therefore after any antimicrobial use. Mm -hmm. Perfect. I feel like you just explained what we do at the JCA clinic, um, to be honest, which is just so lovely to hear. Like it's just, yeah, it's everything about the, obviously the context of the client, taking into consideration their individual case, how they're responding, what they're responding to. But yeah, a big, a big, a massive component of how we will look at treating the gut on an individual basis is the concept of like what we need to do to support their gut through the treatment. So if they're, if we're using, which we often do, that's why I said heavily at the start, like because of the chronic gut conditions we're dealing with, we're often using some form of antimicrobial treatment, which believe me is a diverse pool of what gets used um, based on client results and, and, and um, individuality, but there's a whole aspect of, the way you describe it, it's almost, I think of it like a cushioning of like, how do we cushion them around the introduction into even starting them? How do we cushion them through the utilization? And what does that look like? Almost, if I had to say the most importantly on the flip side of that, how do we walk them back out? How do we, how do we rebuild that terrain or um, how do we nurture that environment throughout and then after? And that's, that's through the use of supplementation and prebiotics and probiotics and then obviously diet is a massive component let alone lifestyle do you do you find I will get to our last question in a minute but <laughs> do how do you go with prebiotics with your clients because for us with our chronic gut clients like we we use prebiotics but we find we need to not in all cases but I would say majority of cases I don't know if you agree Carissa but majority of the time we would struggle to bring in prebiotics right at the start or um, particularly the dosages you were just talking about, like there's something that we need to build up to. And a lot of our clients will have to, we'll have to bring them in sort of um, maybe a, uh, maybe kind of like whilst on the antimicrobial or as we're kind of, we've gotten some of that undergrowth, sorry, some of that overgrowth, whatever we're dealing with a little bit under control, but I'm just curious because it almost sounded like, you're having potentially success with going in earlier with those prebiotics and those dosages. I'm just, again, wondering how clients are dealing with that, with the symptomology picture. And and that's the key thing. Um, I probably should have alluded to this 
that five grams of, of goss, by no means am I saying to a patient, all right, straight away, start with five grams mm-hmm. of goss, um, because I guarantee it, they will come back saying, I am constipated, or I'm bloating, <laughs> like, or I've got these problems. Uh, I've done that one too many. <laughs> exactly, that they will not be happy. So even in sensitive patients, you start low, mm. start low, go slow. And when I say low, I'm talking half a gram mm. For, for a week, then increase it to a gram for Perfect. a week. You know, really start low to work your way up to that dose. Now, when it comes around to prebiotics, um, this is where I would say the next generation of prebiotic supplementation is, is almost at its forefront, whereby because we understand more about the microbiome, because we understand what can influence the microbiome, we also understand how to feed it. So there's particular types of of prebiotic fibers which shouldn't be given to particular Mm. patients i'll give you an example if a patient presents with constipation and has high amounts of um, methane or methanogens or also known as m smithii within the microbiome what can actually happen is if you give inulin it can feed up these methanogens causing a exacerbation of the bloating causing an exacerbation of, of, of the M. smithii um, within the gut. So just going in with, with a multi, multi-prebiotic fiber mm. that's not targeted at what you're trying to achieve, yes, it's going to cause problems because you know, 50% of the times there could be a prebiotic in there that the patient doesn't need based on their microbiome. So it's all about prescribing targeted prebiotics in accordance with their microbiome. Um, the other one is, is yeah, as I mentioned before, start low and go slow with all prebiotic fibers. Um, the exception, well, I wouldn't say the exception, but HMOs, what I'm finding is in my sensitive patients, so those, um, let's say, SIBO-based patients or those patients who say, I have bloating or I can't tolerate fibers, they can actually tolerate HMOs a lot more uh, effectively than any other type of fiber. So I would introduce that as a targeted prebiotic fiber, first and foremost, then once their microbiome has been built up, then introduce um, more selections of of other prebiotic fibers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great, great. No, that's, that's really interesting. So the last question, Brad, is kind of pulling this all together, I think, as far as the different types of testing that are out there besides um, the metagenomics of what you're using at CoBiome. The other aspect here is testing itself and the regularity of this testing. Um, So obviously if us as practitioners, we might have a bit of a skew if it was just us, how regularly we'd like to test ourselves. But for the average person coming along who wants to investigate their gut, um, is having gut issues or having some form of health issues that they suspect are related to the gut or we think are related to the gut, what's a time frame look like here as far as the regularity of testing? Because I know for us at JCN, we'll do an initial test and then we'll have a time frame that we'll look at for retesting whether we're retesting just once um, again or it might be an, uh, another time to follow but also there might be some instances where they only do an initial test based on 
obviously cost or all sorts of parameters. But in an, I guess in an ideal mm. world, I'd love to know from you what you think about like the timeframes here with having a test done initially and what that would ideally look like for retesting. And then I guess ideally if someone wanted to stay on top of their gut health, like what would be a valuable way to approach testing the gut regularly as we might think about having blood pathology regularly? Now, there's there's almost three three questions in this one question, yeah. and I want to go back to um, the, the very beginning in relation to, to what you said about um, the influence that we as practitioners may or may not have on our patient's decision mm. to test or not to test. So one of my research projects a number of years ago, we did a survey of about 600 Australian adults in relation to the use of, of testing the gut. And we asked all these different questions. And what we actually found was 90% of, um, of patients that we, we surveyed said that they want functional testing done on their gut. Okay. Better yet, the vast majority of them said that they want a naturopath, nutritionist, or integrative GP to do this testing. Mm. And most of them wanted the testing done before receiving treatment. Okay. Mm. This is where it gets really interesting. 95% of people said if they um, measured their gut health and there was, you know, some um, element that they need to address within their gut health, that they're more likely to adhere to a treatment protocol. So I, um, I've, I've spoken about this for, for a number of years. There's this misconnection, miscommunication between practitioner and patient in relation to um, functional testing, especially in relation to gut testing, where prackies, and I'm to blame for this as well. You know, my early days, I'm like, oh, I don't want to recommend testing because it's going to cost too much. Mm. But you've got a patient in front of you who's been suffering for years and years and years. Their quality of life is is compromised. They're unable to to, to work full time. If we can understand what's going on and find that root cause of of disease, that will give us direction for treatment, thereby they can get their quality of life back. So there's that to consider. Now, I think it's really important to measure at the start of treatment, okay, to get that baseline to go exactly what's happening, and then also where you need a head in relation to treatment. Now, I'm, I'm generally recommending my patients to retest after six months. The reason I say retest is to really determine, has my treatment worked? Mm. Okay. A lot of trackies that we, we've done research with, they, they basically say, oh, I, I do three months to support with gut health. I do a three-month protocol, and then I move on to the next element, which is hormones or, or heavy metals and so forth. But who says you actually achieved what you were trying to achieve in that three to six months? Mm, exactly. um, did you use a higher, high enough dose? Um, because of the changes, what else has happened? So we're not just retesting for our own curiosity to go, mm. oh, what's happened? We're retesting to ensure that we're providing our patients with the best treatment direction to ensure that what we've been doing for the last six months mm. has actually resulted in a positive outcome. That can have a multiple um, implications. If it comes back saying, you know, there's a few markers still out of range, then you know that that something else is going on to influence those results and then thereby you need to change direction of treatment. If it comes back and all the markers have, have come back into play, 
there's 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 this feeling that you get inside when you can actually present these before and after to your patients to say this is where you were when you, we first started working together six months later this is where you are now and i'm sure you've done this with blood pathology over over the over the years but they're amazed that they get and the feeling that you get almost you know makes your your heart beat a little faster to say I've made a change of what sorry I've supported my patient to make this change and look what's the, the change that patient is going to be recommending you like there is no tomorrow that patient is always going to be a patient of you yours because you've shown them evidence that there has been a change mm-hmm. does, does that make sense can you oh, can you relate to that, that so much I love 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 how you just explained that because it just again it's it just reinforces a lot of what we talk to clients about. And I love that you even brought up about just how practitioners can get in their head, particularly at the beginning of starting practice. Um, mm. I talk to, I've always talked to our new practitioners and even in some of the online workshops that I was doing for a while about this concept. Like it's like, don't put your own thoughts about finances on top of a client's state of health like when you feel so fundamentally unwell you will do what you need to do to feel well and you want to do that as quickly as effectively as possible um and yeah we've got to kind of get out of our own way about that and we generally see that with clients that come to JCN like they're there for a reason like they they kind of come with the expectation of testing but you do need to make sure you get out of your own way because that concept of of testing and, and the cost of that test can sometimes make you a little bit kind of hesitant and particularly when it comes to retesting. But the, yeah, I love how you're talking about just that feeling it gives you as a practitioner because when you can, I know I'm just sort of reinforcing what you say, but I just, I love it. Like when you can show a client six months down the track this is where you were versus this is where you are now. Like the enthusiasm that they get, the joy in what they've achieved. And also the other thing is the compliance that that gives you moving forward because you often, when you see a retest, there may be um, particular areas as a practitioner, you're like, fantastic, these are looking amazing, but okay, great. This is helping me now hone in again more specifically because I can see these areas need a bit more support. So I know I need these particular prebiotics moving forward and I want you to eat more of these types of foods. Whereas without a retest, you're not having that same information in such detail. Um, So from my point of view as the practitioner, it's like, well, this is awesome because now I can refine your treatment again and get you there quicker (laughs) again. But there's nothing like a client seeing a retest and seeing like, look at what I've done, <laughs> you know, for them, just like, yeah, this is working. They, they know they feel better. Or if say they, cause as, as a human, I mean, we talk about this on the podcast a lot as human nature, we tend to get hung up on what still isn't right. So say they're not bloated anymore um, and their bowels are moving a bit better, but they still struggle a bit with constipation and they're dealing with a bit of intermittent reflux still. So it's like, well, we know they've improved a lot, but they're just, all they can think about is I'm still not moving my bowels every day, for instance. And it's, it's something else outside of them that we can go, no, you have improved, like step back, think about your symptoms and where you're at now versus six months ago, but also 
here's something physical that I'm showing you. So it's just such a powerful tool and it makes me very excited. <laughs> you no, know, no, definitely. I, I 100% agree. And, and that's a, a great summary of, of how we as clinicians actually feel in relation to, to, to testing and, and getting those results back to, to, to tweak the patient's treatment plan to go, okay, this didn't improve, but this did. So this is the direction that we need to go. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So is there anything else, Brad, before we finish up that you would like to share with the listeners? I'd love you to obviously tell them where they can find you online um, or any of the other amazing um, opportunities that you offer, because I know there's more than um, just being a clinician yourself. But yeah, anything else you'd like to add? Um, well, if, if anyone wants to get in contact, uh, drbradleach.com or drbradleach on all the socials is, is where you can get me. Um, I do a lot of um, events and practitioner training, so um, you'll, be, you'll be seeing a lot more of me. I've got probably about half a dozen different um, events booked in already for, for this year. Um, so I, I hope I can stay engaging and I hope I can stay relevant. Um, I thoroughly enjoy, you know, talking about the microbiome. I thoroughly enjoy being on podcasts. Uh, I think this is probably my 10th podcast this year. Um, so I, I, I do really enjoy just getting that opportunity to go, let's just chat um, all about um, um, the microbiome and, and health. So it's, it's been an av- absolute Thanks, um, privilege and honour to, um, to be chatting with you both here. Oh, thank you. No, it's been fantastic. And we'd love to have you back. I'm sure we will. There's um, a lot of notes I've made as we're chatted that I'm like, oh, I'd like to go down that rabbit hole with, with you further. So it'd be great. But thank you. I'd be more than happy to uh, to come back. Wonderful. Thanks, Brad. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm sure we'll chat to you again soon.